It's such a joy to be here this morning and to look at God's word with you. I'm so happy that Andre was saying that God really uses the weak, because uh, that's what I am here this morning. I'm feeling a bit fatigued, uh, more so than on a normal Sunday. My body clock last night decided to wake me up at three in the morning. Um, but when I was thinking about it, I thought it probably works out for the best, because my husband and to be fair, many others tell me I speak a lot louder and I speak a lot faster than an ordinary human. (laughs) So I'm thinking that maybe the three o'clock start is just to mellow me out for today. We'll see how it goes. If you do have your Bibles, you can turn to James 4. We're going to be looking at verse 1 to 6 today. And today I've been asked to speak on the title, True Wisdom is a Well-Ordered Heart. And this is part of our True Faith series in James. And as a church, we've been going through the book of James for some time now. And it's such a good thing to go through scripture slowly, to really consider what God might be saying to us and to seek to understand his word. So I hope that we're encouraged to see that we are still in the book of James. It's not because we can't find new material, but it's intentionally to make sure we don't skim read, we don't skip over what God is telling us as a community. And I'd encourage you to adopt this approach in your personal reading at times as well. It's easy, and I speak from personal experience, before work to quickly skim over some verses, or perhaps before you go to sleep, without fully engaging and understanding what God is saying to you. But for me personally, I find that I'm more excited to read God's word, when I really understand it, and I understand it better when I look at what particular book am I reading? What is the type of writing that this person is giving to us? Is it a song? Is it historic? Um, When I look at what are the central themes behind this book, it really helps me to understand and to not be intimidated by God's word, but really to grapple with it. So I encourage you to think about that in your personal reading. And in what we're looking at today in James, we know it's a letter, and we know it's a letter to people who already know God, because James tells us that in the first chapter. We also know that James is writing in the second part of the Bible, the New Testament. So we know it's a time after Jesus has risen. And the central themes that James seems to capture is really what our whole series has been titled. It's a genuine, a real, a true faith. And James is concerned throughout the book that there may be us Christians who call ourselves Christians, who say we believe in God, but on the inside, we're actually dead. Our lives look identical. They're indistinguishable from people outside the church and from the rest of the world. So with that fairly long background and context, we're going to dive into the scripture. And I'm going to call up my friend Nora, who's going to take us through the scripture today. You can read through it with us. And it's James 4, 1 to 6. I'm going to read from verse 4. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and convert and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do 
not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you do not ask, you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world is enemies with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but, in, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Thank you. Thank you so much, Nora. So I don't know about you, but I think that what James is telling us here when we fully appreciate the consequences, is a little bit offensive and fairly radical. It's not something if we're seeking popularity, we're gonna go put on a friend's Facebook wall. So at the start, I want us just to close our eyes and pray. Pray that God will help us to see what he's saying with an open rather than defensive heart. Father, thank you for your guidance in James 4. Won't you speak to us and let your, spirit make, let your spirit make the text come alive to us today. We ask you that you humble us so that we consider what you're saying to each and every one of us. Amen. So there's two introductory things in the scripture as I was going through it that I found quite interesting that I'm going to share. And the first is let's look at what James is not saying. He's not saying if. If there's fights and it continues. What he seems to be taking for granted is that there will be conflicts in our relationships. And not just in any relationships, but in our Christian relationships. And it's really important to recognize that this conflict exists. Because first, if we don't recognize it, we won't be able to work through it, to sort it out, if we don't acknowledge it. But second, and quite importantly, it really um, inhibits our witnesses our ability to witness for Christ, rather, when we deny the existence of conflict in our lives. Either those looking in, those outside the faith, will feel inadequate. They'll feel that they're not good enough when they look at our perfect relationships reflected. But if your life is anything like mine, then more likely they'll think that we're hypocrites because they'll see the conflict in our lives and see the pretense that we're trying to put forward. So James is calling it out plainly and saying that there is conflict in our Christian relationships. And it's worth noting that it's Christian relationships specifically. Because sometimes, myself included, we have a tendency to blame things on the others. My work is really difficult because, you know, there's some non-Christians there. My family relationships, they're a bit tricky, but, you know, they don't know God. And all your Christian friends are... Mm, that makes sense. But James is making it a bit more awkward here because he's saying, look at yourselves. This is not outside the church. This is in you. And the second thing in our introductory discussion that I noticed and I found interesting is James is telling us why. He's telling us why we struggle to all get along. He doesn't just say, stop the gossip, the criticism, the bad relationships. And to me, if he's telling us why, 
It means either he thinks we don't know why, or at least that we don't admit the true reason for our conflicts. Now let's explore this a little bit further. I'd like you to think back to your week and think of a time where you felt perhaps angry, disappointed, frustrated, irritated, that there was some conflict. It could have resulted, hopefully not physical, but it could have resulted in a verbal altercation, a fight, or maybe it just affected a relationship, the way you engaged. Maybe it was at work, maybe it was at home with your kids, with a sibling, maybe it was at church. And when you're thinking of that con conflict, think about what caused that conflict. What would you say the reason was for that dispute or lack of peace? If you're anything like me, you'd probably say it was the other person involved. If they're a Christian, they weren't acting very Christian. They were being proud, selfish, arrogant, lazy. You might say that it's because you were fighting for a cause. It was necessary. I was fighting at my work to show my point of view. I was fighting for injustice even. Or you were fighting for your family. You were fighting, fighting, fighting for your status. If you spend time on social media, you might say it was just because someone was jealous. The haters out there are always going to hate. <laughs> you can probably tell I don't go on social media. That's probably a bit outdated. <laughs> um, and if you watch TV sermons particularly, you might say that it was the devil trying to stop you from receiving your rightful blessings. That's why you've got conflict. Um, perhaps you would say that you had the unfortunate experience of visiting home affairs and conflict, conflict and peace. It really just doesn't exist in that space. It's really hard. It's a foreign concept. But I know that I'm particularly bad at this, at finding any reason for conflict, at justifying it. Any reason that's not within me, not my motives. Sometimes, and quite embarrassingly, I find myself thinking, wow, I should really pray a little bit harder for that person because God's got a lot to do in their heart. Um, and that's really when we notice that the spirit of justification is so strong. And friends, James, I think, is trying to highlight in this passage that all of us justify why there's a lack of peace in our relationships and our hearts by pointing anywhere except to ourselves. But as we start going deeper into the message of James today, can we at least be open to admitting that what James is saying might actually just apply to us? It's going to require cryer maturity. It's going to take some humility from us. And it's going to take acknowledging that the first reason we might think of for our conflict might not actually be correct. And C.S. Lewis is a Christian, was a Christian writer, and he warns of the dangers of listening to scripture for other people rather than ourselves. And he says this, and I think the quote might be on the screen. It says, may God's grace give you the necessary humility. Try not to think, much less speak of their sins. One's own are a much more profitable theme. And if on consideration, one can find no fault on one's own side, then cry for mercy, because this must be a most dangerous delusion. And what C.S. Lewis seems to be saying is that what James is saying applies to me and it applies to you. 
And if we can't see that, then we better ask God to help us to see that. So having recognized that our explanations for conflict and lack of peace may not always be correct, let's take a closer look at what James thinks is the true cause of our conflict. And I'm going to point us back to James 1 and 2. It won't be on the screen, but you can have a look in your Bibles and I'll read it for us. It says, where do these conflicts and quarrels among you come from? Is it not this, that your passions battle inside you or between your members? You desire and you do not have. You murder and envy and cannot obtain, so you quarrel and fight. And I see the first two reasons that James says for our unfilled desires, why these things can cause conflict. Our first, because we want things that we do not have, often things that others have. And secondly, that we react really badly to our unmet wants and desires when we don't get what we want. And these desires could be material things. They could be a home. They could be a job. They could be a family. But they could also be less tangible things. They could be a desire for control. There could be a desire to be loved. Um, There could also be happiness or success. And all of them might be good things at some point, but they might not be available to us for a particular period or at all. And it's so tempting for us to be dissatisfied with what God has given us at times. I know people who are not working, stay-at-home parents, unemployed people, retired people, and they just long to be engaged, to work. And then I know people who are working that just long to be at home. I know people who don't have kids, who look at parents and get envious and think, wow, I want that. Maybe I don't have a partner, maybe I can't have it now, but I want that. And then I look at friends with kids, particularly on some days, and they get so jealous of their friends without kids, at their flexibility, at their time. Now, I must say, for Greg and I, to many of your disappointment, we don't get envious of you guys with kids. (laughs) At least not yet. But I do have many things that I do struggle with, of things that I want when I don't have them. And at the moment, I'm struggling to balance all the different puzzle pieces and things that fit into my life. Thinking about how much time, how much attention to give them. So in summary, time management is a focus point for me. What do I spend my time on? And on the rare occasion I find I have time, I'm planning I have time that's gonna be alone. Maybe Greg's out, he's seeing a friend, or he's got a work function, and I'm thinking, what will I do with this time? If I make a plan, plan to see a friend, plan to do admin, I'm always cross with myself. I have no free time. Why don't I sit and rest? I need more rest. But I find if I don't make a plan, if I have that rest, I sit at home and I think, why did I not plan to see this person? I haven't seen Alicia in ages. I should have just made a dinner time. Alicia agrees. (laughs) And then I just catch myself thinking, either way, it's a vicious cycle. It's an ungrateful cycle and not recognizing what you have at the time. And what helps me is trying to focus my attitude to one of gratefulness. Greg said gratitude is a better word, one of gratitude. To look with what I'm faced with 
and to consider what I could be grateful for. To focus not on what I don't have, but to start noticing what I do have in that moment. And Paul tells us, and I think these scriptures might be, might be on the screen, that I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. That is from Philippians. And in Hebrews, we see, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And finally, in Timothy, it tells us, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. So to sum it up, God tells us that we will experience a greater peace if we are more intentional about, intentional about noticing what we have, all the things God has given us, instead of focusing on what we do not have. So we've already looked at the first puzzle piece of of why we sometimes find conflict in our lives, of the fact that we far too often want things that we do not have, instead of having a grateful spirit. But now secondly, let's look at the, the second reason I gave, and that's why we react badly to unmet wants and desires. In James, we see evidence that we react badly when we do not get what we want, because we value these things above all else, including above people. We can see that if our fights are causing us, not our fights, we can see that if our desires are causing us to fight with other people, to compromise those relationships, then whatever we're fighting about, that's become more important than those relationships, than those people. And God calls us to be peacemakers, servants to our brothers and sisters, But instead, we often find ourselves treating them as objects, as tools to get the things that we want. I often need to ask myself the question at work, is this task or this outcome more important than these people involved? And when the inevitable answer is no, I need to reconsider my approach and what I'm willing to do to get to that particular task or outcome. But why do we value these things? Why do we value them so much that we're willing to sacrifice even relationships? I think it's because we think that these things, this marriage, this relationship, this job, we think that they'll make us happy and fulfilled. We think that they'll bring us satisfaction. And that's what the world tells us. But it reveals a really troubling reason of why we react badly when we don't get what we want. It reveals a lack of trust in God's plans and God's faithfulness. If we are fighting so much to obtain things, it's because we don't think that God is able and willing to give us what we really need. But most importantly, it's because we don't think that God is enough. And we don't acknowledge that only in him will we find our true peace, contentment, happiness, acceptance, satisfaction. Verse 4 in James 4 calls us an adulterous people. And James is highlighting that instead of committing ourselves fully to God, we seek the satisfaction elsewhere. And this may not look like abandoning God altogether. We might still be coming on a Sunday looking respectable. We might be going to a small group, praying, fasting. So we're in some way committed to God. 
But what we think we need is God and a few comforts and other things in order to be happy. And God knows that these things, no matter how good, will never make us satisfied. The very best marriage, the very most fulfilling career, the nicest house in Constantia will leave us restless, dissatisfied, and empty if we are looking for our happiness in it. And God knows our hearts will never be satisfied unless we abide in him, unless we find our meaning, purpose, and acceptance in him. And David captures this well in the Psalms, which may be on the screen as well, can't remember slides, when he says, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Let us reflect. Can we honestly say that we value our time and relationship with God more than a well-paid job? Can we say that we value God more than having a family or kids? C.S. Lewis, as likely paraphrased by me, says the following, which will be on the screen. It says, our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink, sex, and ambition when infinite joy in God is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on playing in the mud because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And C.S. Lewis is simply highlighting that if we fully appreciate and understand how much joy and satisfaction is available to us in God, as Claire was saying, if we access that joy, if we access the fullness of God, we would be willing to drop our worldly desires and plans in an instant. But you might be wondering, if we have these problems, if we often want what we can't have, if we react badly when we don't get what we want, can't God just make it simple and give it to us? That's what all the guys on TV tell us, that if we pray really hard, God is going to give us our blessings. Let's have a look at verse 2 and 3 again, at why James says we might not get what we want from God. And the relevant portion of verse 2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly, so that you can spend it on your passions. So in verse 2 and 3, we're told that the two key reasons God does not grant our desires are first, we don't even ask God. In general, we fail to consult with God, to bring something before him, to bounce our ideas off Christian brothers and sisters who God might speak through. We do not commit our plans and trust him. And the world often says that that's not necessary. The world says, you know what your plan is. You get a good job, you make as much money as you can, and you give your family the best status and level of satisfaction and comfort that you can. But do we ever stop and think, maybe God has a different plan for me. Maybe my plan doesn't look like everyone else's plan or like what someone else thinks our plan should be. For example, I started working four days a week at my work. And the first question I got, and it was from someone who does commercial law, but was why? Why would you have less money? You don't even have kids. And just thinking about how to do things differently. Maybe God has a plan to give you more time in this particular period. Maybe God has a plan that you're not in the same place you've always lived and grown up, but he wants to put you somewhere far to impact on certain people. 
So the first reason is that we just fail to check in with God, whether our plans and desires are really what God wants for us. And reason two that we see in the scripture is that even when we do ask, our motives are all wrong. And I'm guilty of this often. We ask God for assistance to carry out our will, to carry out our plans. God, help me to get this job. God, help me to have this partner. Help me to have enough money to rent or to buy that house. And there's a commentator, someone who reads the Bible and studies it and then writes on it, who comments on these verses. And he puts it pretty plainly. He says, we ask for God's blessings in our work or undertakings so that we may consume, eat more and better meat, buy better clothes, live in a nicer home and increase our family status. Not, not to serve and glorify God and his people. Those are the reasons we ask for things. Not because we want to serve people, not because we want to serve God, but because we want to be comfortable. And what James is calling for here is a change in approach. He wants us to seek to serve God and others first. And he says we're going to be more content because we know that we still have our source of joy. Even if our desires and plans don't come about, God remains in control. God will give us what we need. He will be faithful. And he will give us other opportunities to serve. We might ask God for a large house so we can serve and host people. And God says, that's a great heart, but I'm going to let you serve and host people in a different way. And C.S. Lewis, and I think this promise might be the last quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself. Why? Simply because it is not there. So the main thing I want us to take away from today, and if you've fallen asleep, there's no judgment, I'm not as exciting as Andre, but I need you to concentrate to wake up for this. The main thing I want to tell us is that trying to find joy in these things, rather than God, will lead to disappointment and happiness. So let us refocus our lives on enjoying and serving God and others, and everything else will be secondary. So as I come near the end of today's discussion, the obvious question seems to be, where to from here? How do we change these ungrateful hearts? How do we change this reacting badly when we don't get things we want? How do we make God the center of our lives and the other things secondary? And I think James gives us part of the answer in verse six. He says, but God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. But God gives grace to the humble. And the related caution is that if we are defiant, if we insist on complete control and reject God's offer of grace, we miss a genuine relationship with him. And we may continue to be restless and dissatisfied and unhappy. And I believe that the humility that God is referring to in, in verse six here it's not just a modesty. It's not underplaying our cooking or soccer abilities. It's a deep submission to God and recognition that God is in control, that God knows more, that God's plans are better 
than our own. That others' interests are just as important as ours. And I've put Philippians on the slide. It's Philippians 2 from verse 3. Because I think it captures a sense of this humility so well, this deep submission. It says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality as something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And out of the scripture, there's, there's three things that really help me to take steps to let go of my own strong and proud desire to be in control and to submit to God's will. The first is seeing God for who he really is, this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, and faithful God. And once we have a big image of who God is, it makes it seem silly, foolish, that we think our plans and our desires might be better for us than his. It makes it seem absurd that we wouldn't bring our plans and questions before God and ask for the all-knowing's input. And the second is seeing others for who they are, image bearers of Christ. It'll help us to see the value, inherent value in others and to treat them as God wants us to, to seek to serve them and make peace with them rather than treat them as objects and tools for our plans. And thirdly, helps me is to look at the model of humility in Jesus that we see reflected in Philippians, that Jesus submitted to the Father's will, that despite actually being God, he did not seek to enforce special privileges, special rights. He did not insist on his own way, as I often do, but he emptied himself. He took on the role of a servant. And this is the God that we serve, that calls us to serve our brothers and our sisters. And I would encourage you to read these verses again in your own time and to really consider what God might be saying to you. And when you do, James, before he gets into chapter 4, in the verses in chapter 3 just above, it's 3.13 to 18, he talks about these same themes of selfish ambition, of our pride, and it would help, be helpful to get more context. But in landing, I'd like those who call ourselves Christians today to join me in reflecting on whether our lives show that we are living for worldly gains and pleasures, or whether Jesus is our treasure that we can truly say we value above all else. Let us consider if we struggle with contentment and joy, whether God may be highlighting that we need to hold less tightly to our own worldly plans and desires and put them before his feet. And if you don't believe the God of the Bible today, if you're looking in at this whole Christian thing a little bit unconvinced, I'd like you to consider what brings you true satisfaction and joy. And if you feel like perhaps those things at times underwhelm you, they fall short of your expectations, won't you at least consider looking into the claims of Christ 
who offers complete satisfaction to us. Many of us spend so much time pouring ourselves into promises of happiness, in travel and entertainment, in money, in series and food. And yet many people never take the time to consider what could be the most important question of your life. Is it possible to have a real relationship with Jesus? Is it possible to have true happiness and satisfaction in him? So if that is you today, I'd consider you, I would encourage you to consider those questions. I'd like us to just close our eyes if you're comfortable as we close in prayer and ask for God's guidance. Father, thank you for your word and your guidance that we've read today in James 4. Lord, it is a difficult text for us to fully grapple with, and we pray that you humble us, that you open our hearts to truly see what you might be saying to us, God. Forgive us for our ungratefulness, Lord. Help us to see all the blessings and amazing things you put in our front of us and in our lives every single day, Lord. Forgive us when we react badly to things that we think we need and want. Help us to put you first in our lives, God. Give us a true image of who you are and the satisfaction and joy that we find in you, Lord. We pray that you help us to access your grace, Lord, as we fall again and again and again. That you help us to submit to your control, to submit our lives to you, Lord and to put our plans, our hopes, and our desires at your feet because we know that you love us and because we know that what you have planned for us is infinitely better than what we have planned for ourselves. Amen. Can you understand?